I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 79 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. Having recorded Peter's denial of Jesus, Matthew now showcases a second failed disciple who will become a case study in the tragedy of falling on the sword of failure and despair. In May of 2014, Robin Williams, easily among the world's most talented and beloved comedians, was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. It would later be revealed that this was likely a misdiagnosis, as Williams was found to have suffered from something called diffuse Lewy body dementia, which is an aggressive and incurable brain disorder. Robin Williams' wife described her husband as suffering a sudden and prolonged spike in fear and anxiety, stress, insomnia, which worsened in severity to include memory loss and paranoia and delusions. She said, quote, Robin was losing his mind and he was aware of it. He kept saying, I just want to reboot my brain. But the extent of William's suffering was unknown to those closest to him in the summer of 2014. On August 10th, he became momentarily obsessive about some of his watches being stolen, going as far as stuffing them into a sock and then driving them to a friend's house for safekeeping. When he returned, his wife noted that he went in and out of rooms. He rummaged through a closet, but eventually retreated into a bedroom to read. And Robin's wife, Susan, took his reading, something that he hadn't done in months, as a good sign. Even more promising, she thought, he slept in the following morning. I think he's getting better, she told a friend that same morning. But when Robin did not emerge from his room or answer the door by noon, they began to worry. They picked the lock to discover that Robin had hanged himself with a belt and was dead. And the world learned the news that same day and was grieved. Ten days later, LA Weekly published a massively controversial editorial penned by punk icon Henry Rollins with the title that I can't read in a sermon. And in it, Rollins expressed his disdain for suicide and those who commit it, saying, when someone negates their existence, they cancel themselves out in my mind. I have many records and books and films featuring people who have taken their own lives, and I regard them all with a bit of disdain. He went on to tell a story. A few years ago, a guy I'd known for many years hanged himself in a basement. Weeks later, I went to the spot and picked up bits of plastic coating from the cord he used, which were on the floor after he was cut down. I liked the guy, but all I could think of then is all I can think of now, the drawings his kid had made that were pasted up on the walls of his kitchen. Readers were predictably outraged. So after sorting through a mountain of angry emails, Rollins published an apology, which is somewhat uncharacteristic of the fellow. And in it, he described his attempt to come to terms with the mysterious tragedy of the suicidal, writing, I have a picture in my mind. There's a person, one with a family and a huge audience, who's on one side of a seesaw. The family and the audience are on the other side. And this person's condition makes him heavy enough to tilt all of them up in the air and send him to the ground. He didn't want to go, but the condition outweighed all of them and even he couldn't stop it. Is that, albeit crudely drawn, basically it? I have no idea what Mr. Williams thought of Jesus 
But I was thinking about him this week, about Henry Rollins' seesaw image. And I then remembered headlines in the winter of 2018 about a famous megachurch pastor who had killed himself. Another pastor, another famous one in the fall of 2019, who tweeted about mental health on the same day he took his own life. Then another in the summer of 2020. Countless more, presumably not famous, whose tragic ends were not publicized. I was thinking about all of this because of tonight's text. A text I believe is tragically misunderstood, its lesson lost on an audience misled or understandably mistaken. So open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27 and let's work through the text that Ariel just read one line at a time. Now, that was, I realize, uh, a heavy prologue which is fitting, I'm afraid, given tonight's text. You guys already heard it. But here, here's a bit of a reprieve. Let me point something out if you didn't notice already. Tonight we're beginning chapter 27 of Matthew's gospel. There are 28 chapters in all. After several years, we are nearing the end of this particular study of Matthew's biography of Jesus, which is, I think, pretty cool. Not because, oh, hooray, Matthew's almost over. At least that's not how I feel. You may feel differently, but don't email me and say so. It's a celebratory announcement because we've been doing the work, and now we are nearing the end of what I believe is a great read. We want to be a church marked by the ongoing, all-encompassing, lifelong endeavor to learn the teachings of Jesus and to put them into practice. Hey, Peter. <laughs> How's it going? Where, you just, why you got a backpack for? Oh, okay. Sorry, I have uh, problems with focus. Right now, I can't really see you guys at all, but I could really see him clearly when he walked into the room. So, now, we're trying to learn the teachings of Jesus and put them into practice. So, what we do usually is unpack spiritual disciplines taken from the life of Jesus and principles of emotional health and spiritual maturity that are informed by the scriptures. And then we get together in groups that we call Van City Communities and we actually try to learn those things and put them into practice together, trial and error and all that. But then concurrently, we pour over the scriptures. In this particular case, for the last few years, the Gospel of Matthew, these stories, these words of our Master and Lord, because He is the teacher and we are the students. He told us to do it, so here we are. Now, that said, let's read from Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 1. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. Now, it was against Jewish trial law to condemn a criminal at night. Judgments of life and death required a two-day deliberation process. We know from the previous chapter and from that opening line that the Jewish religious leaders have already condemned Jesus. Their minds are made up. That happened the night before. So the wait until morning uh, reads as something of an empty gesture. Verse 2, so they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, in neither his public ministry nor following his arrest has Jesus of Nazareth given any indication that he is the kind of dangerous criminal that necessitates being shackled. Scholars suspect that this too is an empty gesture. If you present Rome with a dangerous insurrectionist worthy of executionist, they figure, well, hey, he better look like one. 
And with these two verses that begin chapter 27, Israel's religious leadership has given Jesus over to Rome's political system. That's important. This is a picture of Jesus being brought before the great seats of earthly power to be condemned, which if you think about it, is kind of a ridiculous visual. One peasant stonemason turned rabbi from obscure Nowheresville, Nazareth, and yeah, he's kicked up a little trouble here and there, but he's still pretty underground to say the least, and they're wheeling him out in chains before the governor like he's Hannibal Lecter. But we, the reader, have the benefit of historical hindsight, and for centuries the church has understood this bizarre juxtaposition as an image loaded with profound significance. Jesus seems to be a nobody rabbi brought before the highest places of authority, when in reality, Jesus is the ultimate authority of heaven and earth. And though he is the true king of all kings, Jesus is willingly condemned and seemingly defeated that he might totally condemn and ultimately defeat the true powers of darkness and evil. As one church father, Origen, wrote, they bound Jesus who looses them that are bound. But those two loaded intro verses are just the preface. And then Matthew shifts his downward spiraling passion story to zero in on one of its most tragic players, Judas Iscariot. Judas has the unfortunate privilege of having his name immortalized to describe his failure. Not unlike our colloquial terms, you know, Benedict Arnold or Napoleon syndrome, they overshadow the actual people from whom their names or the terms were derived. In fact, my guess is that at the mere mention of the name Judas, nearly every person in this room hears the word through a certain negative filter, much like if I were to say the name Adolf. Judas means bad guy. But I wonder if that's fair or if that makes sense in light of the story. So let's read the end of Judas' story as it is presented in Matthew's gospel. Look down at verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said. For I have betrayed innocent blood. Already the portrait of Judas as fundamentally loathsome becomes questionable. The first thing that we read about Judas after his betrayal of Jesus is the beginning of repentance. He is seized with remorse. He returns the money that he received for his sin. And he admits in the company of others that what he did was wrong and why. I have sinned for I have betrayed innocent blood. He doesn't call it a mistake. He doesn't shift blame. He calls it a sin, his sin. He doesn't blame it on someone else or something else. He takes responsibility. I have sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. In fact, the Greek word that my Bible translates as seized with remorse is metomelamai, which can be translated to regret, or it can also be translated as repent. But in Matthew's gospel, the author typically prefers the word metonoeo for repent, as in metonoeo for the kingdom of heaven is near. Which begs the question, why doesn't Matthew use his favorite word for repent in this story? Because, I would argue, there's something missing, but we'll get to that in a bit. Judas has confronted his partners in crime. How will they respond? Keep reading in verse 4. 
What's that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. Now that line I think is chilling. What is that to us? Asks Israel's religious leadership. What has it got to do with them? Everything. They could reconvene the court. They could allow Judas to have another testimony to admit that he betrayed an innocent man. They could pastor Judas at the very least, allow him to make a sin offering, guide him in the process, deal with his repentance. Judas comes to them, his religious leaders and authorities, breaking down, recognizing his sin, and from everything that we can tell, sincerely wanting to make things right. And the people in religious authority over Judas deny him guidance and justice and mercy. A broken sinner in want of restoration, and they leave him to his despair. That's your responsibility. It's as if Matthew could not depict these characters as more villainous if he tried. And then, with a shocking and abrasive delivery, Matthew writes in verse 5, so Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. So much seems missing between the first and second sentence, which is fitting, I think, as suicide always leaves its bystanders in want of answers. But Matthew moves on in verse 6, transitioning back to the corrupt religious establishment that failed Judas with a cruel, bleak coda to this awful story. Verse 6 reads, The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It's against the law to put this money into the treasury since it's blood money. Now notice the instance of what to me almost amounts to black comedy. The religious leaders have utterly scorned their appointment to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before God. They've abandoned Judas in his effort to repent, sending him alone to his despair rather than shepherding him into gracious mercy. And Judas dies as a result. But then immediately after that moment, it is against the law to put this money into the treasury. Suddenly the rules matter, a rule that even a moderately compassionate person would agree pales in comparison to their failed appointment to love their neighbor as themselves. Anyone who's been in the church game for more than a minute recognizes this absurd scene. Heck, anyone with any awareness of American evangelicalism knows this bit. How is it that the religious can demonstrate such meticulous attention to detail and the keeping of preferred rules while simultaneously and blatantly violating what matters most to God. This is nothing new. Money obtained through death, whether it was just or unjust, was considered unclean. So now these guys have a problem. So we read in verse 7, they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, this is likely another one of Matthew's many literary allusions to the greater story coming to fruition in Jesus. Bear with me for just a moment. A graveyard was an unclean place in ancient Hebrew thinking, as were foreigners. But if you remember the last 26 chapters of Matthew's gospel, Jesus extended his ministry to both to graveyards, to foreigners, to foreigners, deliberately moving into the unclean places of hurting and marginalized people to extend healing and renewal and what he called the kingdom of God. 
And the blood money used to purchase Jesus' condemnation is now buying an unclean place for unclean people, and it became known by a new name identified by the blood, the old identity overshadowed by the new. As usual, nicely done, Matthew. And there's even more significance in this seemingly marginal field-buying scene. Look down at verse 9. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Now, Matthew is, we think, writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and he desperately wants to showcase God's masterwork of bringing good out of evil, even in the small details of the passion story. It's not that Matthew believed that God made these things happen, thus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. The biblical understanding of prophecy is more complex than, you know, just predictions coming to fruition. In his commentary on the passage, Bible scholar Frederick Dale Bruner writes, here, as in the tragedy of the slaughter of the innocents all the way back in chapter 2, Matthew does not write his usual, this happened in order to fulfill, fulfill what the Lord said, because Matthew does not want to attribute evil to God. God did not order either the tragedy of the infants or the tragedy of Judas. But Matthew sees that these awful things echo the promises of Messiah foreseen by prophets like Jeremiah. And Matthew is doing more than when he, or he's doing more than that when he mentions they took the 30 pieces of silver and, and I quote the price set on him by the people of Israel. Here's another layer. He's also making another literary allusion to a really strange law from Israel's ancient past. In the Torah, again, bear with me, if a bull gored someone to death, both the bull and the owner had to die. Very different time and place, not something we have time to get into tonight. Maybe not ever, I don't know. But if a slave was gored to death, the consequences were decidedly less dire. No one is executed as a punishment, but the owner does have to pay 30 pieces of silver as recompense. So Matthew is saying... The Messiah finally appeared to Israel, was gored to death, and was valued by his own people as a slave, as a nobody. Bruner calls this prophetic fulfillment uh, both a word coincidence, is his language, and a value coincidence, meaning it helps us make more sense of the Jewish artistic imagination and understanding prophetic fulfillment as more rich and complex than the way we often think of prophecies being fulfilled, kind of like Nostradamus saying things, something's going to happen in the future, crazy, and then that very thing comes to pass. And in this case, the promise of messianic hope braided into the prophetic language of Matthew's story underpins something awful, which is the tragedy of Judas. Judas would have been well familiar with this scripture, cursed is anyone who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person. Maybe this contributed to his unraveling. And though Matthew tells the story in hyperdrive with very few words, Judas unravels and succumbs to despair. Matthew included this story as a companion piece to the one that we read last week, if you were here, in which Peter also betrays Jesus by denying him several times under oath, calling down curses to embellish his denouncement of the man with whom he promised he was willing to die. 
Peter fails. He's seized by pain and with remorse. And again, Matthew, with very few words, he went out and wept bitterly. But Peter's story, we know from the rest of the New Testament, does not end tragically, whereas Judah's story is miserably bleak. And the difference between the two is what Matthew intends to teach readers of the story then and now. There are two significant differences between the tragedy of Peter and the tragedy of Judas. The first is that Peter will eventually willfully face Jesus again. He brings himself ashamed and fallen back to Jesus in repentance. In tonight's text, Judas is remorseful. He confesses. He takes responsibility. He repays the blood money he received to betray Jesus. But there's no mention of Judas coming before God in repentance. He doesn't go looking for Jesus. Maybe he felt as if he couldn't bear it. We don't know. And the second significant departure from Peter's story is in the way one bout of remorse brings repentance, but the other brings despair. N.T. Wright said of this dichotomy, remorse and repentance both begin with looking at something you've done and realizing it was wrong. But the first goes down the hill of anger, recrimination, self-hatred, and ultimately self-destruction, the way that leads to death. The second goes down the route Peter took of tears, shame, and a way back to life. Uh, most of you guys know, if you've heard me talk before, that I like movies quite a bit. A good movie can be good for any number of reasons. It makes us laugh or cry or just entertains us or dazzles us or inspires us in some way. I showed my kids Pee-wee's Big Adventure this morning, and I was cracking up. They were absolutely baffled. But sometimes a movie does more than entertain or amuse. Sometimes a movie shifts something in my soul and I experience the voice and presence of God in a powerful, transformative way during the runtime of a feature film. Not every movie that does this becomes my favorite movie ever, per se, and not every one of my favorite movies does this. It's just the power of God, the artist, to speak to his people in and through art. And one movie that I loved and that shifted me was among my favorites of 2017, I believe. It was uh, Paul Schrader's film, First Reform, something like a, a more overtly theological revisit of the ideas that Schrader explored in his 1976 screenplay for Taxi Driver. It's uh, weird, I thought. You know, the, I had read mysterious mystic theologian and monk Thomas Merton before seeing First Reform. And given my lifelong struggle against self-loathing and despair, Merton's writing on both had been particularly convicting to me before seeing this movie. For example, Merton wrote, despair is the absolute extreme of self-love. It is reached when a person deliberately turns his back on all help from anyone else in order to taste the rotten luxury of knowing himself to be lost. I'd read that before, but... When Pastor Ernst Toller quotes Thomas Merton in First Reform, it felt for whatever reason uniquely rattling to, that, to me at that moment in my life. The quote was, despair is a development of pride so great that it chooses someone's certitude rather than admit that God is more creative than we are. Judas 
has been famously demonized in the Christian tradition. To this day, some traditions practice a burning of Judas celebration during the spring in which an effigy of Judas is either burned or bombed or shot. Ancient paintings and mosaics depict Judas' lifeless body, disemboweled as the book of Acts revealed was the case, beset by demons who drag his horrified soul from the open cavity of his abdomen. In Dante's Divine Comedy, Judas is condemned to the ninth circle of hell where Satan chews on him for all eternity. And this scapegoating of Judas not only betrays the tragic tone of this story, it allows us to pass over the awful lesson unscathed, something I doubt Matthew intended his readers to do. German theologian Hans Joseph Clauck wrote, Judas is a human being and a disciple of the Lord who was stuck in a deep personal contradiction, which at any time could be our own. It's strange to me the awful reputation Judas suffers. Was Judas not chosen by Jesus as one of the twelve? Did Judas not walk with Jesus day and night for years? Did Jesus not stoop to wash Judas' feet? Did Jesus not call him friend with all the others? Judas was, we know, guilty of sin, some of it, I'm sure, relatively small in comparison to the great failure of his life. And I would argue that the great failure of Judas' life was not his betrayal of Jesus, but that he succumbed to the despair that followed. And therein lies the heart of the text. Unlike the people in power, the Sanhedrin and next Rome, Judas is absolutely undone with remorse, so unraveled and despairing that his sin compounds and collapses in on itself until a lie from the pit of hell, you are too far gone, destroys him. Who in this room that follows Jesus has not known the complicated seesaw rhythm of being friend to Jesus one day only to become his betrayer the next? And I suspect that some in this room even know the awful demon of despair, know the way it crouches heavy and detestable on your chest, depriving the breath of God's spirit so that as God says, I will save you, the demon whispers, you cannot be saved. This story uses strong language to describe the awful fate of Judas, as does Jesus himself. But Matthew leaves Judas here. The text doesn't say, but I believe Jesus will be merciful to Judas, this human being and disciple of the Lord who was stuck in a deep personal contradiction, as I believe he will be merciful to me, a man often fitting the same description. The text for you and I tonight is not ultimately about the fate of Judas as much as it is about the call to follow remorse into repentance rather than despair. We've talked for a while now about the misunderstandings that surround the ideas of guilt and shame. Somewhere in the last decade, guilt and shame became some of the great swear words of church culture. And I get it. Many of us grew up in and around church 
where we were presented with an ever angry and entirely ungracious God who was disgusted with our shortcomings and unimpressed with our clumsy, sniveling attempts at good behavior. And so we tied ourselves in knots of shameful agony over our unassailable ineptitude that we wanted to be good but kept screwing up and we were secretly afraid that God hated us for it, that he'd punish us, that, punish us, that he'd withdraw his blessing over our lives. And some of us spent years dismantling and banishing this unrealistic, nitpicking God whom we learned does not show up in the Bible, rightly read. We learned instead a kind Father, most and best revealed in Jesus, gracious and compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness, slow to anger, and who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The God revealed in Jesus who restores Peter, the same Peter who denied him. But the pendulum swung, as pendulums do, and our gracious and merciful God was no longer bothered by sin at all. We forgot that God's anger against sin is justified because sin destroys us. My son, like his dad, has some very big emotions some might describe this as dramatic, but those people are buttheads, so never mind. The other day, Abby and I were correcting Beck for something, and though we are certainly imperfect parents, we were, I think in this particular case, very calm and even in this correction. I think that we were doing the right thing. And I watched my son harden against himself, and he cried out, I'm so dumb. And I took his face in my hands and my expression was very serious and I said, do not talk about my son that way. That is not true. And Beck's expression changed because though no one likes being disciplined, he heard in this strange rebuke, my love for him, my correction of him revealed my love for him. Now, on, on my best day, I'm a decent dad. I have plenty of stories about getting it wrong. But these moments of interacting with small children sometimes remind me what God thinks about me. I was reminded then of God's anger against sin, not because he's a prudish rule mongerer who runs a tight ship, but because he simply will not tolerate that which destroys his children even and especially when it's his children doing it. But we domesticated God so that he became the lazy, permissive parent who never corrects nor disciplines, forever fretful of our fragile sensibilities. And when we sinned, we dismissed a healthy sense of guilt and remorse that served to correct our path because God would never want us to feel bad. Surely not. I think... Judas' despair makes all the sense in the world. I can relate to him. Feeling so overcome with guilt and shame over having betrayed his master, it indicates, I believe, that he loved Jesus, like us, but that he was broken, like us, that he failed, like us, and that he sat at the edge of the abyss with the decision before him to tumble headlong into the darkness or to drag himself, shamed and damaged and scarcely able to lift his head back to the one he betrayed with nothing to offer 
but a broken heart. And he chose to let the darkness swallow him up. I've always related to Judas. He answered the call to discipleship. He walked with Jesus and the others, and he sinned. As many of you know, I'm sure, John's gospel reveals that Judas stole from the money that the group shared. So he walked with Jesus day in and day out, and in secret, he sinned. Some scholars believe that Judas' betrayal of Jesus was likely an attempt to force Jesus' hand, which was, after all, an effort to reveal the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah, and Judas likely believed this, just like all the others, but now Jesus was suddenly talking about how he was going to die rather than lead a glorious uprising against the Roman oppressors, and Judas, like the others, was like, what are we doing? How can this be? Maybe Judas thought that if he could just compel Jesus to act, Jesus would give up this ridiculous, nonviolent movement. And when the guards came with their swords, Jesus would see the truth and the revolution would begin. In other words, Judas may have become frustrated when Jesus' plan didn't match his plan. And he may have wanted Jesus to bend his will rather than the other way around. A feeling every disciple of Jesus has known and will likely know again and again. It's the same feeling we suspect was coursing through Peter's veins when he drew his sword in the garden to defend Jesus and when he denied knowing Jesus in the story that preceded this one. And Matthew places the two scenes side by side so that you and I can see the failure that breaks a person down and hands them over to either guilt and shame and repentance or guilt and shame and despair. As I was reading this text this week, I thought of Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. If you know the story, Paul had written a letter to a new church in a city called Corinth. It was a whole thing. Much of the letter, if you read it, is made up of rebuke and correction. He calls them out on their sin in no uncertain terms, and man, things were wild down in Corinth. Some of it sounds really harsh. And then later, Paul writes a second letter that reveals to us, the readers, that the church in Corinth experienced great sorrow at being rebuked by Paul. But then something interesting happened. Look at this. Paul writes, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. I love that term, godly sorrow. The grief, the guilt, and shame associated with failure and betrayal can be healthy and useful if and when it ushers us into repentance, where we then leave guilt and shame behind. Or it can compound on itself, producing more guilt, more shame that ushers us into despair. Or we can numb ourselves create a fantasy God that doesn't care enough to correct us or steer us away from death, 
pat ourselves comfortably on the back, believing Jesus could never be unhappy with our betraying him, though we know no relationship in the world works this way. When we see the whole story, we see two men who follow Jesus, disobey his teaching, fail him, betray him, and they're seized by a profound sense of remorse and regret. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Jesus, or Judas, was seized by remorse and changed his mind. But one of them is renewed to life through his shame that led to repentance, that brought him before Jesus once again, and the other hurried deeper into the awful black void of his shame so that it destroyed him. I don't know where this text finds you tonight or if it finds you tonight, but it will find you eventually. You will disobey Jesus, fail him, betray him. And as is the case when we hurt anyone we love and that loves us, we should experience a significant sense of guilt, that is, a sensation that we have done something wrong. We should experience what Paul called godly sorrow. And God will find us in our pain and he will gently and with kindness restore us to right relationship. But not if we numb ourselves to that sorrow, not if we deny conviction, not if we wall ourselves off from community, convincing ourselves it's no one's business or that's not for us. It's no one's job to call us on our crap. God wouldn't want us inconvenienced by guilt over our sin, sin that destroys us and others. Not if we allow our sorrow to drive us deeper into miserable dejection and ultimately despair rather than admit that God is more creative than we are. May God, in his anger against sin that destroys his children, give us his sorrow. And may God, with the kindness of a gracious father, restore us to peace and gladness always. Let's pray that that would be so. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.